Welcome to First Baptist Church in Belton. We are glad you found us. We seek to know Jesus intimately, serve Jesus passionately, and share Jesus globally together. Thank you so much for joining us. We hope you enjoyed today's message. Well, good morning, church family. How are we this morning? Doing good. Awesome. It is great to get to be with you here this morning. For those of you who are worshiping online with us, listen, we are so glad that you are tuning in with us and worshiping alongside of us this morning. Now, this morning, we are going to continue our identity series as we look at what we believe God is calling us as the people of First Baptist Belton to be now and into the future. Now, last week, I began with a question, and that was, what is your why? What is your why? You know, if you were to bump into somebody on the street and they were to ask you, hey, what is your life about? What is your why? What is it that gets you up in the morning, motivates you in throughout your day? What is your why? The reason why I started our series out with that is because there is a myriad of reasons. There's a ton of reasons for why we do all that we do in life. But God says that there is only one reason for why you and I exist, and that is to glorify his name. That's to worship him and to worship him alone. And we believe as the people of First Baptist Belt, and it's our conviction that we do that best. We glorify God best when we pursue a life of undistracted excellence. What that simply means is that we glorify God best, we worship God best when we give our best effort, whether that be in personal, moral, or the vocational areas of our life. What God has called you and me to do is to give our best no matter what area of life in which we are doing life. Now this morning I want to continue our service or continue our series by diving into the essence of worship. The essence of worship, that's where we're headed this morning. And in order to do that, I want to begin by asking a follow-up question. So last week, again, I asked, what is your why? This week, my question for you is, what do you love most? What is it that you love most on this earth? You know, some might say that the answer to this question, we need only to look to our financial accounts or or maybe even our calendars. Right. The reason being is because those two things oftentimes reveal what it is that we love, what it is that we treasure most. See, our financial accounts tell us where our finances, our resources to go. Our, our calendars, on the other hand, tell us where our time goes. And what I think the Bible does is it makes a direct correlation between what we love and what we worship. See, the Bible says that what we love is oftentimes what we worship and what we worship is what we love. And so the question that I ask for you today is, where is it that your time, your resources, and your energy, where is it that those things go? I think what we would find is that the answer is, is those things go toward whatever it is that you love most, whatever it is that you worship. And so that leads us to our next core value in our identity series, which is called sacrificial worship. Sacrificial worship, that's our second core value. And remember, these core values that we're going to be unveiling before you over the next couple of weeks, there's no particular order. They're all purposeful. They're all describing who we intend to become as the people of First Baptist. So we're looking at sacrificial worship. See, we believe that God is calling us to be a people 
who were marked not only by undistracted excellence, but by sacrificial worship. We believe that worship, true worship, is a costly worship. And so that being said, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Romans. This morning we're going to be in the book of Romans, a well-known passage. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 this morning. Well, well-known passage, but gets to the essence of our worship. It's going to be on the screen, or if you have a copy, that would be great. I would like for you to read along with me. Now, Paul is writing, and he says this. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. This is holy and acceptable to God. And then he defines it. He says, which is your spiritual worship? Verse 2, he says, this is how you do that. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but rather be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, what is acceptable, and what is perfect. In this well-known passage, Paul begins with a plea. He begins with a plea to the Christians in Rome and also to you and I in this room. And he says, listen, what you have to understand about worship is worship is all of life. See, worship touches every aspect of our life. Whether we live, work, and play, worship influences all that we do. He uses the word present and he's calling us to see that life, that all of life is an unabandoned offering over to God. And then Paul says, that is your spiritual worship. He defines exactly what spiritual worship is. It is an offering of our lives. It's an offering of our bodies. See, our spiritual worship is giving all that we have. It's giving all that we are over to God. It's laying all that we have and all that we are at the foot of the cross and entrusting our past, our present, and our future over to him and to his goodwill. I think it's interesting. Paul gets his theology of worship from Jesus himself. Maybe maybe even recall what, what Jesus says in Matthew 16, verse 24. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Even here, Jesus invites us into a life of worship, but, but what he does is he says, listen, if you want to worship me, it is going to cost you something. It's going to cost you something. As a matter of fact, it will cost you everything. It may even, hear me, it may even cost you your life. See, worship is costly. Worship is sacrificial. You know, over the years in my walk with Christ, I have found Jesus' words in Matthew 16, 25 to ring ever so truly. Just after Jesus says that it's going to cost us something, he says this. He says, if you try to save your life, he says, you will most certainly lose it. But whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. See, I have found that in the Christian life, the Christian life has far more to do with dying than it does living. See, that's one of the great paradoxes of the Christian faith, right? It's, it's this idea that I actually find life not by living, but in my dying. It's in my dying to self that I find what Jesus calls the good life, 
the abundant life. The abundant life is not found in, in pursuing the things that I want to pursue or, or in the worship of self, but rather it's in the denial of self that you and I find what true life is really all about. You know, I think what Paul and Jesus do, are doing here in this passage, these two passages, is they're letting us in on a little secret. I think there's a little secret to worship. And that is this, that you and I, all of humanity is created for one thing and one thing only, to worship God. We were created to worship God. As a matter of fact, Solomon, the greatest or the wisest, most wealthy man in the entire planet, he even wrote this in Ecclesiastes 3. He says that God has placed within each one of us, he has placed eternity in our hearts. You know what that means? That means that God has uniquely placed in our soul, deep in our heart, a, a craving, a longing for something more. Something more, something bigger, something greater than ourselves. In layman's terms, what, what, what Ecclesiastes is telling us is that God has placed deep within our hearts a worship, a worship of Him and Him alone. You know, if you turn to the first book of the Bible in Genesis in the creative order, we talked a little bit about that last week. God designs humankind and He creates them, not just to create them, but He creates them to worship Him. Right, humankind, Adam and Eve, get the privilege of living in perfect relationship with God. I mean, think about that. Think about what it would look like to live in perfect relationship with Him. But not only did they get to live in perfect relationship with Him, but they got to live in perfect worship. Perfect worship of their Creator. Perfect love and adoration that is not hindered by the things of this world. They lived in perfect relationship and perfect worship of their creator. But just like we saw last week, Satan shows up on the scene and, and just like the image of God, the worship of God in man is fractured. See, the way this happens is Satan enters the story and he begins to question the authority of God in their lives. He says, but did God actually say, are you sure that that's what God said? He begins to question the authority, and then he begins to paint an alternative picture. Hear this. Satan begins to paint this alternative picture of what it means to get to experience the good life. We all want the good life. We all want to know what it's like to have the good life. Well, man, Satan does a great job at painting what that looks like. He tempts Eve that, that her happiness and joy and love are outside of God. See, that somehow God is withholding something from you, and so it's you need to go outside of God to find what it truly means to enjoy the good life. He even tempts Eve that she can determine the course of her life because she, too, can become like God. See, all you have to do, you just take a bite out of that apple. If you, Eve, if you just take a bite out of that apple, you will get to know the difference between, or you will get to know the knowledge of good and evil. And so from the moment that Eve bit into that apple, the perfect worship of God is fractured. The perfect worship of God is completely and totally fractured. And then from then out on out, the Old Testament just tells us the story of the fallout of this misplaced worship. See, God comes to his people, Israel, and he says, listen, my desire is that you would worship me and that you would worship me and me alone. And no matter how hard Israel tries, they just can't do it. Maybe you feel this today. I know I do in my own heart. My heart's prone to wander. 
No matter how hard I try, it's like quicksand. I, I keep falling short. And the Bible reminds us that all have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have fallen short of the true worship of God. The Old Testament tells us the story of how this fallout happens over and over and over again. But, but God doesn't leave us in the mess, does he? See, that's the beautiful part of the gospel. God doesn't leave us in the mess. Even Romans tells us that while we were at our worst, while we were at our worst, God sent Christ to this earth to take on the false worship of the world. And he would go to the cross and he would do that and then he would die and then he would be resurrected on the next day to restore the worship of God and his people. See, the gospel is not only an invitation to salvation, certainly not less than that, but it is an invitation to worship God rightly. The gospel is an invitation to salvation, but it is also an invitation for you and for me in this room in 2021, thank goodness, in 2021 to worship God rightly. See, God's desire for his people is the worship of his name and his name alone. And so again, it is in Christ that he invites us into that relationship, invites us into worship. I think this is what Paul is getting at when he says it's by the mercies of God that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice. See, our worship is predicated on the fact of the gospel. It's when we understand who God is and and what he has done for us in Christ that the only response for those who understand this message is, in fact, worship. The only response that you and I can have, if you understand who God is and what he has done for you in Christ, the only only response is, in fact, worship. And then Paul continues in verse 2, he says, Therefore do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but rather be transformed by the renewal of your mind. See, what we learn is that in the fall, not only is worship distorted, not only is the image of God uh, uh, fractured in man, but so is our thinking. Our thinking. Not only is our worship, not only is the image of God in man fractured, but so is our thinking. From the moment that Satan uttered the first lie in the garden, you and I in this room have built our lives, we have built our lives around the idea, around the lie, that somehow life is found outside of God, that is somehow found outside of the worship of him, that the good life out there is if only I, I work hard enough or if I save enough or, or maybe if I possess enough stuff. You know, one theologian said, all you need to do is, is go to the local shopping mall. He calls it the cathedral of consumerism. He says, all you got to do, you just open the doors of the mall and you walk in and you see storefront after storefront all telling you the lie that somehow the good life is found if you have this purse or that purse. If you're wearing these shoes or those clothes, if you have this appearance, if you have that identity. See, the good life is found in what you can earn, what you can achieve, or what you can possess. See, the world paints a false narrative for what it means to truly worship. The world paints a false narrative for what you and I choose to worship. And so it's in the fall that we are tempted to worship creation over the creator. It's in the fall 
The fallout of this misplaced worship is that you and I are always tempted every day, each and every day, we are tempted to worship creation over the creator. Theologians call this exchange, they call it the great exchange. And Paul writes of this in Romans chapter 1 verses 18 through 23. He says this, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, or by their false worship, they suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, they have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So Paul says they are without excuse For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, nor did they give thanks to him. But they became foolish in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And hear this. And they exchanged the glory. They exchanged the worship of God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. See, I think what Paul is writing here in Romans chapter 1, he says, listen, he says, after the fall, we are tempted to worship creation over the creator. Tom Schreiner, theologian, he writes this, he says, believers are to resist the pressures to conform to the present evil age by the renewal of their mind. He says, this downward spiral of thinking traced in Romans 1, 18 through 23 is reversed in those who are redeemed by or redeemed from sin. He says their their minds are not given over to futility, but they are renewed to understand truth. Their minds are renewed, he says. He says this means that transformation does not bypass human personality or the brain. Human beings are transformed, hear this, as their thinking is altered. We're transformed when our thinking is altered. That's what Paul says. He says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. What, what Paul is getting at here is he says, listen, do not buy the lie. Do not buy the lie that the cultural narratives are teaching you that life is found outside of Christ. He says, rather, do not be conformed to this pattern of thinking, but rather be transformed by a new pattern of thinking. A new pattern of thinking, a new pattern of seeing the world, a new way of seeing the world. He said it's in this thinking, being able to discern the areas of life where we have bought this lie that you and I are then transformed. But my contention this morning, here's my contention. I believe that, that our transformation begins in our thinking, but it's rooted in our affections. See, transformation begins in our thinking. It begins in our mind. It begins the way that we see the world, but then it takes root. Lasting transformation takes root in our affections. This is what Augustine said. He he said that transformation begins when our loves are ordered rightly. Transformation begins, it takes root when our loves are ordered rightly. I think what Augustine is getting at here is that worship is the lens by which we see everything else. See, worship, 
Worship is the lens by which we see everything else. But, but here's the thing, that, that creates a problem for you and for me. The problem is then is that our worship better be ordered rightly. If worship truly is the lens by which we see everything else, then, then our worship must be ordered rightly. See, all of life is inherently a worship problem. All of life. Remember, we were created to worship God. That's what we're created to. God has placed that deep within your heart, which means that you and I are always worshiping something. We're always worshiping. And therefore, all of life is, is inherently a worship problem. And so we've got to get the order right. Because if we get worship right, then we will get everything else on this earth right. I love the way that Don Whitney describes worship. He says this. He says, worship is the response of a heart in love with God. It's a response of a heart in love with God. It is to focus on and to respond to God according to his worth. It's to ascribe his worth rightly in your life. It's to understand that, that God, the, the, the creator and the sustainer of the universe, in his mercy, has come near to you. He is Emmanuel. He has come near to you here on this earth, and he has given you his very own life. It's to understand that that, that stimulates our worship, that the gospel stimulates and it restores our worship. See, if all of life is worship, then you and I have got to get the order of worship right. You know, I don't know about you, but, but maybe you're like me in this room and, and man, you are just tired of yet another sermon on giving. Maybe you're tired of hearing another sermon on, on tithing or, or maybe you're tired of, of having another plea of, uh, we need more volunteers. We just, we need more volunteers. Please come volunteer your time. You know, maybe you're tired of yet another missions campaign where we're trying to fill trips and get people going on mission or, or maybe it's, maybe you're tired of getting another envelope in the mail of people asking for, for donations towards a mission trip that sure seems a whole lot more like a vacation. But you know, the, the thing that I've learned about all of this is that all of these things exist because worship doesn't. All of these things, these pleas that, that you hear from the stage often, are, they exist because worship doesn't. I can explain that this way. See, I would never have to preach another sermon on tithing ever again if worship existed. You want to know why? Because instead of asking you to give 10%, I would in turn return 90%. See, if we get worship right... We understand that all that we have and all that we are is God's. 10% becomes yet a little thing in the wake of the worship of God. See, we wouldn't need to, to, to plead for you to, to, to step up and volunteer if worship exists. As a matter of fact, we would have lines and droves of people hungry to, to worship by volunteering in the church if worship existed. We, we'd be turning people away left and right. See, if worship existed, we wouldn't have to worry about filling trips. Because, man, you could not wait to hop on aboard that, that flight. And, and who cares where it's going? Because my job as a worshiper, worshipful person of Christ is to get on that plane and to go wherever it's going to land to preach the gospel to somebody who doesn't know Christ. See, if worship existed, there would be no more kiddos without moms and dads. 
Because if we understood that God has adopted us, that at one point, at one, one point in life we were separated from Christ and He has adopted us into the family, how in the world can we not do the same? See, all of life is worship. It means we've got to get the, the order of our worship right. Have you ever wondered why in the Ten Commandments, the first commandment is, do not have any other gods before me? Have you ever thought about that? I certainly have. I, I think it's because God is giving us a right order of worship. In the Ten Commandments, we're, we're, we're often told that they're broken into two different sections. The first five commandments tell us how we are to relate to God. How do, how do you and I relate to God? And then the second half tell us, well, how do we relate to, to mankind? I think that's God's divine, divine instruction, His divine plan to show us what it looks like to have our loves ordered rightly. See, if, if we love God and we adore Him above everything else on this earth, then you and I will get everything else right. See, if God is our first priority, everything else will fall into place. Even Jesus Himself, He, he says, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. He would also say in Matthew twenty two thirty seven through 38 that, that we should love the Lord your God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our mind. You know, in layman's terms, Jesus is, is saying that the most important thing in your life, the, the number one priority in your life is, is not your job, it's not your family, it's, it's not your hobbies, it's the worship of God. It's that He would be, He would reign supreme on the throne of your heart. He's echoing God's design that the worship of God must be the lens by which we see everything else. And I think Paul would say, for when it is, we will discover God's good, pleasing, and perfect will. When worship, when the worship of God is the lens by which we see everything else, it's then and only then that we will be able to discern God's good and perfect, pleasing, or His good, pleasing, and perfect will. You know, in Christian circles, God's will is kind of a buzz phrase, isn't it? We're always like, well, God, well, what is God's, what is God's will for my life? You know, getting to work with college students, I hear that all the time. Is it, is it this relationship or that job or this major or, or whatever it may be? It's, what is God's will for my life? You can go to any one, any number of the, the Christian bookstores and you can find a ton of books written on this concept of God's will. What is God's will for your life? And you know why I think that there's tons and tons and tons and tons and tons of books written on that? It's because everybody's trying to figure it out. And nobody knows what it is. But you know what? I think we make it too complicated. I think we make it too complicated. In fact, I think, I think if we were to break it down, I think this is what we would find. That God's will for your life is not that car. It's not that job. It's not that relationship. It, it's not this ideal platform for, for your life. But it's this. It's that you would worship the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. See, that's God's desire for you. That is His will for your life. And that when that is practiced in your life, everything else comes into focus. Everything else falls into place. God's will for you is that you would love Him. That you would give your life over to Him. All that you have and all that you are, you would give that over to Him in worship. 
Worship would not just be an hour or two on Sundays. It, it wouldn't be just a few songs that you sing uh, on Sunday mornings, but it would, it would encapsulate all that you are, all that you have would be His. That you would live as a living sacrifice. I love what Don Whitney says. He, he says that worship is a means to godliness. In other words, worship is a means to godlikeness. The more truly we worship God, the more we become like Him. That's God's unique will for you. That you would love Him above all other things. And that in doing so, you would become like Him. That He would restore that image, that perfect image. He would restore His image in you. That's God's will for you. This is God's will for me. That's God's will for our church. That we would worship Him above all things. That we would understand all that we have and all that we are are His, for His good will, His good pleasure. So it's in creation where God creates man and He creates them to worship and enjoy Him forever. And, and then it's Satan steps into the scene and he begins to distort the image of worship. Begins to write a new story of false worship into the hearts of humankind. And, and we feel this even today. All you need to do is just turn on the television. It's route with stories of what the good life is all about. Of man, if if you really want true happiness, it's here. It is here. It is. Turn on the radio. Pop culture is filled with false narratives of what the good life is all about. About what worship is truly about. But see, it's the gospel that orders our worship rightly. See, God is actively restoring the worship of the world and, and he's restoring it back to him. And it's by his mercy and his mercy alone that he saw you, he knew you, and he saved you. See, in doing so, God gave his son. He gave everything. See, God gave sacrificially. He gave us everything. He gave us even his own son. God has given you everything. How then? How then can you respond back to him and not give him all that you have and all that you are? If God has given you everything this morning, how can you not give him all that you have and all that you are in return? See, that's what it means to be marked by sacrificial worship. It means that we're going to be a people who live radically generous with all that we have and all that we are, understanding that God loved first. That God loved us first, and it is by His mercy that compels us into a life of sacrificial worship, of costly worship. And so here's what I want to do this morning. I want to uh, spend time together as we commit ourselves over to this core value of sacrificial worship. And, and here's how we're going to do that. We're going to bring it up on the screen. This is our description of sacrificial worship. And I want us to read this together as we commit ourselves, you, me, this morning, we're going to commit ourselves to pursuing a life of sacrificial worship. I'll begin. All of life is worship. As God's people, we recognize all we have and all we are is a blessing from Him. Together, we present ourselves over to God as faithful worshipers by practicing radical generosity with our time, our finances, our interests, and our homes for the advancement of the gospel in the world. Church, this is who we are. This is who God is calling us to be. He's calling us to be marked by an undistracted excellence. 
And he's calling us now and into the future to be a people who are marked by sacrificial worship. Let me pray for us this morning. God, we love you. We thank you that, that you loved us first. God, that you have created us deep within our hearts, a longing for something more, a longing for you. And while our worship has been fractured, God, you have sent Jesus to restore the worship of your name and the hearts of your people. And so, Father, help us to, to be those people who order our worship rightly, that worship you above all things that you get our heart and you get our mind and you get our soul. You get all that we have, all that we are is yours. It's a, it's, it's to return all that you have given us back to you. Father, help us to be those people. Help us to be marked by these things. Father, we love you. We are so thankful for who you are and what you have done for us in Christ. Amen. Well, this morning, if, if, if you're in this room and you've never, never experienced what true worship is all about or what the good life, so to speak, is all about this morning, I would love to talk to you about that. If you're interested in wanting to know more about the abundant life that Jesus talks about, well, today is the day for you to enter into a relationship with Jesus where you can learn what it means uh, to follow Jesus and, and enjoy the abundant life. Uh, so I'm going to ask that everybody stands and if that is you in this room, listen, I would love to talk with you. Uh, we'll have plenty of people up here to, to pray with you if you need prayer. Uh, we love you, and we want you to enjoy what it means to worship Jesus rightly. So if that's you, come. As the music plays, you come on down. Thank you for listening. Please feel free to call the church at 254-939-0705 if you need prayer or if you just want to talk to somebody, we're here to listen. If you would like more information, visit our church website at www.fbcbelton.org. We're located at 506 North Main in Belton, Texas, and would love to see you soon.